0: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, we are going to get to some great interviews later today. We're going to talk with Dr. Warren Farrell about uh, Mr. Farrell. I had a friend uh, in college named Farrell. This is uh, the crisis of boys. The boy crisis is what he calls it. And also later, General Mary Eder. Eder? Eder? I'll have to make sure I pronounce it right when I talk to her, a retired major general about trust in institutions and uh, what's going on, and uh, we'll talk to her in a few minutes. All right, I need to cover something for you today. This is important. This is, um, I have been getting some feedback from you all on our, uh, on uh, social media and other places and over at the ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. People asking me to clarify this And so I'm going to spend a few moments This is the distillation This is the um, the the uh, culmination of a few months Of talking about this with you all Getting feedback from you all And here you go, okay? This is Ed Martin's The Narrative Machine The Narrative Machine The Narrative Machine Is the dominant storytelling enterprise of the United States of America right now the narrative machine is a group of entities that are working together to tell people exactly what to think and what to therefore know and therefore what to do and the narrative machine is made up of three parts the parts are big tech big media and big government Okay, so what's the narrative machine? Again, the narrative machine is what delivers the story that informs what you know, and therefore uh, what you believe and what you see and what you do. It's kind of, um, it's actually, I've been doing a little cleaner and say, the narrative machine tells you the story. It gives you what you're supposed to understand is happening. It gives you what to see. It therefore tells you what exactly you know about things. And then from that, you do things from it. So it's a very, very powerful. Big tech is the part of the narrative machine that is using neuroscience to change our brains how is neuroscience being used to change our brains very simply in big tech they are using the rapid rapid speed of being able to test responses to get the response they want from you and me And the response they want is uh, thumbs up on Facebook and hearts on Twitter and likes and retweets and reactions. And it's a dopamine hit. You see, you you go and you check your Twitter and see, you know, twenty seven people have forwarded your, have retweeted your message, or they liked it, or they commented, or back and forth. Dopamine hits based on these responses. And the key is, it rechain, it 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 rewires your brain. And you become conditioned sort of like Pavlov's, Pavlov, Pavlov's Twitter, you know, like Pavlov's dog. You want the response. This is real. This is real neuroscience. And it's you don't get uh, neuroscience. You don't get um, the dopamine hits. You don't get this sort of big tech pop that they do to you by cerebral thoughts and contemplation. You get it by bam, 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 bam so that's what big tech is doing and you can see it it doesn't matter which side you're on is it and you know it, it could be the it could be the images the the, the uh, titillation of uh, of images of of you know of, of women or men or good-looking people or whatever or responses or likes or facebook uh facebook uh, interactions all these things are part of big tech's plan to rewire your brain and it's working this is known big media is the second part of the narrative machine and they are literally using brainwashing techniques they're using primarily images cable TV picture the images of Antifa and the capital insurrection quote unquote and, and all these images they're using doctored videos you know there's been the phrase Rupar they say it's a Rupar as a verb saying using a video improperly and, and passing it off as a hoax uh, based on some journalist that was you know famous for doing that but they're using the power of brain brainwashing brainwashing and by the way it's it's not just a, a CNN and MSNBC it includes Fox News and the key is agitate people brainwash and agitate so they return brainwash and agitate so they return. So they'll stay. So they'll, they'll get worked up over Tucker Carlson's reports, uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, commentaries, and they'll come back for Fox and Friends in the morning. It used to be in a lot of places, you'd drive home from work and you'd listen to, you know, the, the, the radio and you'd listen to AM talk radio in St. Louis where I'm from, KMOX. You might listen to the Cardinals game on the ride home. You'd leave your car parked and you'd listen to KMOX in the morning and you'd get the morning, uh, news in the morning and you'd, you'd sort of fall into the rhythm with your, your 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 media, in this case radio. That's what big media is doing, except they're brainwashing people. And it's very, very powerful. And finally, big government is utilizing events and the power of government to fit the same narrative. So you go, the government is targeting investigations of white supremacy and Asian hate crimes and insurrection all along the line of feeding the kinds of dopamine hits that big tech needs, the kind of washing that uh, big media wants, and they all feed together. And here's the challenge. It's very, very effective. It's not. Um, it's not just reliant in this case on one or more sort of visionary, uh, kind of um, masterful uh, uh, presenters of these of this information. There's not, you know, a series of people. There are many talented people, and and by the way, talent. When I say talent, I mean that they're good at it. I'm not saying I agree with them. But they're not just relying on talented people. They're relying on high, high tech and big time technology that to track whether big media is able to persuade you and how much you return and big tech, how you will react. And over time, very rapidly, it doesn't take six weeks to do an analysis. It takes six minutes to watch the speed and the analysis that's going on with supercomputers to tell you exactly what's happening. So now put it all together and say to yourself, what happens when the most powerful apparatus in the history of humanity, the narrative machine, is employed for something other than, say, the good of the country? You know, the good of the of the American experiment. You know, the rule of law and our nation. What if what if there? What if it's being driven for reasons that either have to do with ideology, for example, or just have to do with greed—that you make more money if you make a crisis. Either one, you can either be a communist and want to destroy institutions or you can be a, 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 a someone who wants to make money off of the system. But either way, you could have something other than the values that informed the American experiment at the heart of it. And that's what it certainly seems like. I can't read the minds of the people who are dominating our world, but I can say pretty clearly that the big tech guys and gals, the big tech companies the monsters that are controlling big tech, that are using you know, neuroscience to, rechange, to change us, plus the power of big media. And don't tell me when people say big media's a, a audience share is down. That's true. That's true. I know that. Since November, the audience is still powerful. Still writ large, writ large over the course of the whole uh, nation. Big media is brutally, brutally powerful. And they have a business model, which is a brainwashing model. And then you put in play government, big government. Now the federal government controlled exclusively by the, the far left, or the left at least. It's very, very daunting. It's very daunting. And the first answer is to identify the problem. The first reality is to see it and then you have to start breaking yourself of the habits, move away from where they trap you, build your own community of knowledge and get ready to build together, to come together to change the equation. It's not gonna be from the usual answers. Oh, we want big tech to come before the Senate and do nice. No, that's not what's gonna do it. It's gonna be more radical in terms of policy, in terms of politics, in terms of leadership. That's a narrative machine. All right, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. We got a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is a very... Well, he's a really famous guy for a guy like me, and most Americans probably know his name, although they should know it better. It's Dr. Warren Farrell, and he's, uh, he's written, I don't know, a gazillion books. Uh, two of them were huge bestsellers, Why Men Are the Way They Are. The other one's called The Myth of a Male Power. Um, I think I read somewhere, Dr. Farrell, that your books have been trans- uh, published in 17 languages. But the mo- more recent book, and I brought this up because we-, we know the crisis of our children right now, um, which is happening because of the co- co- pandemic and everything else but we hear a lot about this question of uh, girls sports and there's a lot of people saying don't let the transgender thing destroy it but he wrote a book a couple years ago now almost three years ago called the boy crisis with the another famous author john gray who uh, wrote um uh what is it i get it always get it wrong women are from mars yeah yeah so so dr farrell the boy crisis it feels to me like we're focusing on a lot of stuff well I'll tell you this general Mike Flynn who's my friend said recently that 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 men and boys are just being so marginalized and that women uh, moms and women are going to have to save these boys because the, the boys are being I mean we're, we're in a really tough time that we're uh, emasculating all these boys and men and and it, isn't it worse than it was even three years ago when you wrote your book
1: it is worse than it was three years ago. And when I wrote The Myth of Male Power in 1993, I could never have predicted that, you know, between 1993 and today, that we would really have the, you know, we, things have gotten so much worse for boys. You know, I live in California. And, um, uh, and where Roger, um, Phyllis Schlafly's son, uh, lives, and and they, um, you know, they have legally passed an affirmative consent law, um, and th- which means that if you uh, have a son who's going to college, and he asks a woman on a date and she says yes, and he reaches over to, to hold her hand, um, you know, she, probably nothing will happen. But legally, she can sue him for sexual harassment uh, because he didn't ask for affirmative consent. That is, she didn't say a verbal. No, to him before uh, he reached over to hold his hand. Now, 99% of time, you know, most women wouldn't make a big thing of this. But if there's a bad breakup, and the woman can go back to that and say, "Well, you did this. I didn't see anything at the time, but now I'm feeling some trauma for that," and the the boy can this can be reported to the college, and so reporting it to the college means that. Under President Obama's administration, he sent out from the Office of Civil Rights letter, a letter to all the colleges saying that because many women have experienced sexual harassment on the campus and we don't want them to have their, um, their college career in any way interrupted, uh, we have to start, we have to believe, start with believing women. And so, um, and so therefore the campus shall hold the trial, um, but the trial shall not have due process. That means that the man will not be able to have himself or his lawyer, talk to the woman about what her experience was and feed back to the woman what his experience was. And so they both have a dialogue. It's only the the elimination of due process means basically that she is to be believed and he has very minimal um, or no uh, cross-examination powers. Now, the school, um, if they don't say anything about this, um, this, uh, the school has to and they end up saying, well, the male, we, we did interview the male, and he had a perspective that was very different, and we don't have enough evidence uh, to convict him, then the school is looking like it's soft on uh, an anti-female, and what's at stake here is the all federal monies that have been given uh, from the federal government to colleges. So I live near, and um, Roger Schlafly, was his son, lives near Stanford University. Stanford University gets $800 million in federal money each year, so you can imagine how fearful the um, universities are of doing anything that looks like they are supporting um, men uh, who might be doing something as dangerous as reaching out to hold a woman's hand.
0: Yeah, and we're talking again. We're talking with Dr. Warren Farrell, and uh, and uh, we're talking about the boy crisis. And and so, what's the? I, I can't even believe I'm saying this because I was going to say, does it ebb and flow, or is it just flowing away? I mean, meaning, um, do you see that people get tired of this and they come back to their senses? But then again, when you say you, you, you published uh, one of your books in 1993, and you couldn't imagine how God it feels like, maybe we're we're only going one direction. I mean, and 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 what what is it, why isn't there more of a movement to oppose this? I mean, where is the movement that says, um, you know, we're resisting this and we're, and it, because it doesn't feel like it's a feminist movement anymore. It feels like it's just the, 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 the main part of the culture just rolls over uh, boys and men and, and the long-term effect it feels like is it's, it feels like it will be that you're sort of, you're, you're just losing, that big chunk of society. I I mean, I I don't understand why there's not more opposition to this.
1: Yes, well, the reason there isn't more opposition is because we're biologically programmed to protect women. We are biologically programmed to prepare boys and men for disposability in each each generation's war. And so men's purpose throughout history has been to prepare to die so women could live and other people and other men and and, um, our fathers, et cetera, could live and we wouldn't be under Nazi rule. And so it's harder to psychologically attach to someone you're preparing to be disposable, um, and so that's the underlying biological reason why we care a lot less about men and boys than we do about uh, women and girls. We're, we're we're programmed to, if something is threatening a female or a male, for us guys to compete to protect her and to be willing to die to protect her or to die to protect the country. And so that, that so I think that's what's going on at the deepest level. However, at a slightly less deep level, uh, you know, that we're all part. Part of the same you know family group and if you know if if we if we are if if only women are winning then men and men then, and men are losing then really everybody is losing because most all the you know the, my two daughters and um the uh, the daughters of a, almost all of us around the country they're not interested in falling in love and having children with a man who um, with a male who's a failure to launch who's living in his parents basement and boys today are 66% more likely to be living in their parents, you know, at, at home with their parents, often in their basement, uh, than than, their, than girls are. And there's a huge amount happening. So what, what is happening to boys, so this doesn't all sound like hyperbole, is that when I started doing the research on this for the, for the boy crisis, some, some, oh, about 20 years ago now, um, I began to, I proposed to my publisher, I said, here's 10 causes of the boy crisis. <laughs> And, but you know, I haven't researched all these yet. And so, um, but as I started doing the research for that over the next 14 years, I found that all 10 of the causes were, nine of the 10 causes were secondary to one cause that was. Cl- common and the deepest cause of the boy crisis, and that is um, boys who had a lack of father involvement, they were having the greatest amount of problems. And on some level, we knew this since 1965 when the Moynihan Report came out and the exp- uh, the, the study on the part of Senator Moynihan, who was also a sociologist and advisors to both Republicans and Democratic presidents <laughs> at the Cabinet level, um, he um, he had found out that in investigating inner city crime that inner city crime existed in that percentage of african-american communities where there was no father so it was not a problem in the african-american family it was a problem in only that 25 percent of the african-american family that had minimal or no father involvement well today minimal or no father involvement is true for 32 percent of the caucasian families and seventy percent of the african American families and also seventy percent of Native American families, and so it really is so you can see that this has been discovered many years ago, but many people said, "Well, this is because people who don 't have father involvement they're also poor and so what I was able to discover when I did the research for the boy crisis was this, that, that this has been tested for. We found that people in who grew up in wealthy communities wealthy communities that had no father involvement or minimal father involvement, those children did worse in the wealthier communities than they did in poorer communities when there was an involved father. So my next set of questions began to be like, well, what is there about father involvement that is so important for children and especially for boys? And I found that in both, you know, with both boys and girls, when there was significant father involvement, they did better on all, all, more than 50 developmental areas from, you know, doing better in every single subject in school, doing better in sports, being, doing better in following their dreams, whatever those dreams were, uh, doing better, being less likely to be addicted to drugs, to video games, to porn, um, being less likely to withdraw, be coercive with their parents, um, get into, um, commit crimes and it went on and on and on and the difference between boys and girls without dads is that the boys problems were far more intense. They were much more likely to commit suicide dad deprived They were you know, almost all your mass shooters since that's in the news recently all your school mass shooters all of your school mass shooters who killed 10 or more in the 21st century. There's only been 5 of them but all 5 of them were Children uh, who were dad deprived. Um, you're a very high percentage, about 80 to 85% of your other mass shooters, not the school shooters, um, have dad deprived backgrounds like Adam Lanz, Elliot Rogers, Dylan Roof, Nicholas Cruz, Stephen Paddock, people like that. And so there's um, a huge amount going on that we absolutely need to be um, cognizant of, both for our sons and also for our daughters.
0: Uh, we're again we're talking with uh, Dr. Warren, Warren Farrell and um and we're pers- particularly I'm I'm looking at the the uh, recent book by the way it's uh, published by Ben Bella Books it's available anywhere you find books and then, of course it's called uh, The Boy Crisis. Uh one more question Dr. Farrell um is is the um is the problem of the American people stepping back from the conflict? meaning that the cancel culture and just sort of the toxicity of it makes it if you if you stand up there and you say oh well let me say something in in favor of men or men's rights or have a men's rights group you'll just you you can be driven you know insane by the negative attention It, it feels like that's been really effective now you started thousands of of chapters groups i saw read somewhere john lennon joined one of your men's groups all these different things but it, it feels like and phyllis schlafly the late phyllis schlafly who of course of who i worked for, whom i worked with uh i was great at organizing people it feels like we're sort of um everyone stepped back they don't want the trouble a lot of people have and and am i wrong on that are you seeing the seeds no, of hope and
1: go ahead. No, it's not it's not easy to see the seeds of hope so for example uh, when uh, I went out to the um, Iowa, to Iowa and talked with the nine or ten of the presidential candidates out there, and the presidential candidates, um, a few of them, um, like um, Andrew Yang and John Hickenlooper, who's now the U.S. senator, uh, they were very responsive to what I was saying. However, their campaign manager said, "Warren, we can't articulate that because this, this could alienate single mothers. Who, you know, when you're telling them mm-hmm. that fathers are very important, they don't necessarily." Really want to hear that, and it will well, also you know, alienate feminists who you know feel that after divorce they want to have the option of moving out of state to, with a new um, man and forgetting about the and not having to be um, you know burdened down by the the past decisions that they made to marry the former man. And right. my response, and I, I first discovered this when I was on the board when I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, and I brought this up to um, the. feminist counterparts and they like looked at me as if like you know Warren are you suggesting that we shouldn't be um, you know giving these opportunities for women and we shouldn't be putting uh, women being able to have children without being married first and I said I'm fine about women being free to make decisions that they want to make that's what I've fought for for many years along with you but when we make decisions um, we have to those require responsibilities and when a woman makes a free decision to have children, she makes a free decision to put her children's needs before her own needs. And so, uh, and, and they looked at me like, um, you Warren, know, <laughs> yeah. you're making a fortune from speaking around the world on behalf of women's issues, you know, and we're the ones who recommend you. Are you turning against us? And my response was, you know, most of, a lot of this was hidden in through body language um, and that was being said, but I knew that if I continued, um, you know, I was at that point, um, a prime uh, a finalist, apparently, for um, a MacArthur Grand Genius Award and a, a Ford Foundation Award. And that they all just got dropped as soon as the rumor um, got spread around that I was beginning to talk about the importance of fathers.
0: Huh. Wow. All right, Dr. Warren Farrell, thank you for your voice. The book, again, that I'm referring to is The Boy Crisis. Dr. Warren Farrell and uh, Dr. John Gray, thank you, sir, for your time. We'll have you on again. I appreciate it very much absolutely it's a pleasure talking with you okay thank you dr warren farrell we'll take a quick break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Very good timing for our next guest, uh, uh, Major General, retired Major General Mary Eater, is with us, an Army General. Uh, and she has had a lot of different roles, and she's been someone who is um, well-known for leadership and talking on these uh, many key issues. But she has a new book out uh, three months ago from Defense Press, is the publisher. It came out in uh, late November called American Cyberscape Trials and the Path to Trust. And so here's why it's good timing, because I noticed over at Politico um, that Joe Biden, they were talking about President Biden, and that they're concerned about they don't have a cyber czar, so maybe... General. Maybe you could help out the Biden administration. I don't know if you need another job. Probably don't. But uh, so welcome to the program. How are you, Major (laughs) General? Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm sure I am not qualified for that job. (laughs) Well, how about the word in your book, American Cyberscape? The phrase that I saw in in reading about it um, was how to um, the word trust institutional trust. And it's particularly when you're a general in the army, you know better than I do. The American people relate to our military, almost like no other institution they trust in it. And how do we how do we get? um, How do we rebuild trust in a world where so many of the dynamics of our social media, our media, our politics, just sort of erode trust? I mean, it seems to be the question, right?
2: It is the question. And I've been following this for the past couple of years. I look at a lot of polls and a lot of studies, and it seems that in just the past year, we have hit rock bottom in this country in our trust in all of our institutions, whether government, business, non-government institutions, or the news media. So
0: now we're at the point of rebuilding back up from the absolute bottom. And so, if you and and I guess the one thing is to sort of I hate to sound like this is, but this is I mean like an AA rule, like acknowledge the problem, right? So we acknowledge like and one of the things is that the erosion of trust has not just been in government. There's been an erosion of trust in like say our church institutions. Just pick any denomination, any any faith uh, group um, in say universities, right? There's a somehow it's a, it's a, it's kind of across the board. So what's our what's the first sort of steps back? I mean, is it Is it um, rebuilding? Is it uh, raising and starting again? How How do you talk about the problem? How do you talk about
2: the most difficult problem there is? Well, you mentioned the military, and certainly having come from the Army, I can tell you that it is typically rated at about the highest, as you said, 72%. The only institution rated more highly right now is small business. So Hmm. why is the military rated so highly? It's because, to me, this is a values-based institution that polices itself. Now, in all institutions, there are those individuals, there's people who make mistakes, who do the wrong things, but what does the institution do to maintain its values, maintain its focus, and maintain its drive and its mission, and it's taking care of those problems internally? So how do we move forward? We continue to do just that in each one of our institutions. We have lost a lot of common sense, I believe, and through our media, primarily, we've lost a sense of community. What do we all have in common we can talk about anymore? There isn't much because we're so fragmented
0: in everything we see, we read, we hear, and we all have our own views. Um, at, we, we're talking with uh, retired Major General uh, Mary eater Eder eater sorry I did it to you once I asked you I'd get it wrong shoes and but among our many books she's got a couple books one is leading the narrative I talk a lot on the program general about the narrative machine and how the power of big tech and big media right now is sort of dominating our narrative but, and also her newer book is called uh, American cyberscape um, is it possible Not, of course it's possible but is it what's the the, the barrier to trust one barrier to trust Feels like social media for a whole bunch of people. You you can have a good day and build some community and build some trust, and it could get ripped to shreds on social media within you know a day. I mean, and it's almost like the speed of life has gotten so fast. What what used to be a relationship you'd have with an institution over months and years can be a relationship, a new relationship. in 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 days or hours but it can be you know torn asunder in days and hours it's almost like the speed of life is too fast to sustain the relationships you need for trust
2: i think you're absolutely right about that and certainly i don't think we've even adjusted to the 24-hour news cycle which began in 1989 there is a huge amount of space available for information and yet as we watch the news each day, and I watch a variety of channels. We see the same six to seven stories repeated over and over, and we also yep. see a horrific focus on celebrity lives, which doesn't do anything for anyone to focus on that. <laughs> yeah, I think we need it's, some education. You know, teach me, yes. teach me how to find a a bot or a fake site, or show me how these things look, so I can be. Better attuned to protecting my own privacy online and looking out mm-hmm. for the things I should be aware of
0: the uh, again um, uh, but may ask you about one thing the the military has been so valuable for um, a uh, for um, Americans right I, I always think a little bit I'm probably being too um, too uh, easy when I say this or too simplistic, uh, after World War II we had this unbelievable GI bill and it just transformed a whole set of people, mostly men at the time, but just people by the GI bill got them out of the lower you know working class into the middle class dramatically and educated them and all. But the military had this sort of a, this um, leveling impact right you did and in the military you didn't have to go to West Point sometimes you did and you became a general, but sometimes you didn't go to West Point and you, you, you made your way through, and the military had this way of sort of being a great uh, leveler and giving people a chance to succeed. Um, We don't have the same kind of uh, service. We haven't had, well, I guess we have had the wars, but is, is the military one part of the solution? Is it, is it some sort of a civil service uh, component? Is there something we should be doing to 18 to 22 year olds to sort of um, break the cycle of this sort of self-referential <laughs> thing that kids do any time, but I don't know. I wonder what what there could be solu what the solutions could be. Well, I think you've probably seen a number of propo- proposals
2: for something like national service the year after high school, you know, one year to eighteen months. And during the years that I lived in Europe, I saw a number of countries that do this, whether it's conscription into the military at age eighteen, and then it would last nine to twelve months. Or it would be some other type of service, whether you're building, building paths through a national forest or picking up trash by the side of the highway. It is beginning to instill back in youth the concept of doing something for a cause that is greater than yourself. And I certainly think that is something we can use as a concrete thing to do in this country. But you mentioned big tech, and we have a considerable amount of work to do there.
0: Yeah. And I think I told I mean, I'll get on my soapbox. My listeners will kind of smile and they'll hear, oh my gosh, I'm doing it to you to this great guest too. But the problem with big tech is that they're actually using neuroscience to change our, our brains. They're not just trying to persuade us. And so, and especially young people, it feels like um, it may not just be, you know, a, a good phrase in, in, in two years to persuade them back. We've sort of, we're, we're changing the way our brain works. And, and I don't know if we know how that's going to play out in the future. Right. Well, it's almost the informational equivalent
2: of e-cigarettes with a flavoring okay? yeah. yeah. <laughs> what you mentioned is the ability to create an addiction to having that type of constant stimulus there. Um, whether it's a like or a picture or a meme, it's a constant stimulus and it becomes very difficult to put it down. I think we're going to see some big changes to tech, I hope, in the next several years This is an industry that began like the Wild West. Maybe it's innocence, maybe it's naivete. Look, we'll just build this thing, and people will like each other, and we'll hit like buttons, and then it got away. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that having tech police itself is working. I think it is too large. I mean, you can look at the tech profits in just the last year, and those profits for these big companies render it, I think, having overly an overly amount of power in the marketplace. So these five biggest tech stocks whether it's Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, their combined market value at the end of this last
0: year was 7.5 trillion. That's a lot of influence. That's a lot of power. Yeah. Wow, that sure is. Well, it's very interesting, and I, I have to, unfortunately, I have to go. Um, the, the book, again, and I'll put it up on my social media account. It's American Cyberscape Trials and the Path to Trust. Also, um, uh, General Ader has a website, bensons-review.com, which is a lot about uh, what she does and the other writings she do. Thank you for the, the time today, General. It's a very important topic and interesting to hear uh, you talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and come right back. I'll put that all up on social media. Fascinating topic. And uh, fa- she's a general, is a fascinating writer. to put up there. we will be right back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Former Czechoslovakian president Václav Havel knew better than most what it feels like to live under tyranny. He not only lived through the communist occupation of Czechoslovakia, he helped to end it. He was under constant surveillance by the secret police and went to prison multiple times for defying the communist regime. It's no wonder the people quickly elected Havel as president after kicking out the communists in 1989. In his classic political essay called The Power of the Powerless, Havel notes an intriguing idiosyncrasy of life under tyranny. When communism was at its height, businesses everywhere would display signs in their windows reading Workers of the World Unite. There was no legal requirement for grocers to display this sign. Most didn't care about politics. They were just trying to run a business. If you wonder why they would acquiesce to tyranny in this way, Havel has the answer. He wrote that the true message of the sign was not one of solidarity with communism. The sign was really saying, I, the greengrocer, live here, and I know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be depended upon, and I'm beyond reproach. I'm obedient, and therefore, I have the right to be left in peace. Havel could see that most of these businessmen, like many today, were willing to make some concessions to a loud mob so they could live without controversy. Vaclav Havel was able to see beyond the sign to the soul behind it. Conservatives today need to do the same thing. It won't take a repeal of the First Amendment to silence most Americans. All it will really take is a little social and political pressure. Patriots of America, listen to me when I tell you that we cannot allow ourselves to be silenced. When the pressure is on, that's the time when our voices are needed most. We have to be loud, we have to be knowledgeable, and we have to be firm in our convictions. From grocers to garbage men, and from policemen to politicians, every one of us has a say in the direction of America. Don't be silenced. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Our mission, clearly stated at phyllisschlafly.com, is to enable and mobilize grassroots activism on behalf of cherished conservative values. You're encouraged today to go online and read the goals we support and those we oppose. Then join us. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and come back next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We got to wrap it up real quick. We got a couple things, but I'm going to preview something for you tomorrow uh, we will cover. And that is this. The Supreme Court early, uh, well, early in the afternoon on Monday uh, agreed to hear a case. And you'll, you'll see some coverage, but probably not much. But I'm going to preview it for you. But they, they, the Supreme Court announced they will hear an abortion case an abortion case. And it's actually a case of whether the, uh, a, a, the attorney general of Kentucky, you remember, might remember his name. He spoke at the Republican bench. Daniel Cameron is his name. Very, very impressive, uh, young, uh, attorney general for the state of Kentucky. And he has wanted to, um, Intervene in a case to be uh, about abortion and about abortion restrictions, and the case is uh, Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center, the 2018 Kentucky ban on uh, surgical abortion, and uh, the the and so he um, is is making a sort of procedural motion to get involved to defend because Democrat Governor. Uh, Democrat Governor Andy Bashir, who got in office and replaced a Republican, dropped the effort to uh, to appeal and offer, you know, so in other words, the, the Kentucky passes a law says limiting abortion, it's struck down by the court, and the Republican governor appeals it, then the Republican governor loses his seat. And the Democrat drops the appeal. It's a little bit like, by the way, what happened with Joe Biden. Joe Biden got in office, and there was a whole bunch of appeals uh, to the Supreme Court that uh, Donald Trump had 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 taken up his administration, and Biden dropped them. In this question, Cameron, the Attorney General, is saying, "Give me a chance to weigh in on this because uh, it's such an important fundamental issue." Now, it's, that's my point here is to tell you it's not exactly a straight up abortion uh, case. And the reason that I, I bring it up to you is because sooner or later, this Supreme Court is going to start to take some of the cases that relate to abortion. And it, I, I've never thought that they will reverse Roe v. Wade sort of on the first case or in one dramatic fell swoop. But instead, they'll take a few of these cases on the edges. This could be one of them. This is the first case of what what, what we would say the six to three Supreme Court conservative majority would have has taken up. Um, and that they will be hearing in the next year or so. And so that's a big deal. It's a big deal for court watchers and it's a big deal for uh, pro lifers and others that are, um, that are interesting, uh, interested in this topic. So watch for that and I'll give you some more details on it. But I ran late with wonderfully late with some great interviews today. So let me, um, Wrap things up and say thank you as always to our great Noah, the technical director and producer of the show. Also Joanna for booking our guests and you for listening. Don't forget go to proamericareport.com to check things out there. And I will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro America Report on the Answer,
1: San Diego.